Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is part 13 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. In the period since World War II, Canada has been engaged in an unprecedented experiment. The extension of post-secondary education in colleges and universities to a majority of the Canadian population. Governments at all levels have expressed their belief that universities are a powerful engine of prosperity, and this belief produced a tidal wave of new universities, new students, and new academic programs. But this wave was followed by a number of second thoughts. There are fears that standards have fallen, that the university, in its rush to economic and social relevance, has lost its independence, that corporate influence is now seeping into the university like swamp gas, as one University of Toronto professor recently told CBC Radio. These fears, and the hopes of which they are the shadow, are our subject in this programme. Part 13 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Universities were once a world with which most Canadians had very little contact. As recently as 1954, there were only 70,000 university students in the entire country. Eight years later, the number had doubled. By 1968, it had doubled again. A brief pause, and then enrollments continued their climb during the 1980s. By the time York University's Seth Feldman totaled the numbers up for ideas a few years ago, there were over 900,000 students attending university on at least a part-time basis. That such explosive growth has transformed the institution is clear. Into what is not as certain. Tonight's program presents several views of the condition of the Canadian university today. The first and bluntest opinion comes from Jack Granitstein, who says that what Canadian universities have become is appallingly mediocre. Granitstein is now retired from academic life after a 30-year career as a professor of history at York University. In 1984, he teamed up with his friends and fellow historians, Robert Bothwell and David Berkison, to produce a polemic on the unhealthy state of Canadian universities called The Great Brain Robbery. A sequel called The Petrified Campus was published in 1997. In both books, Granitstein and his co-authors analyze the underlying problems that they think keep the Canadian university in a state of frozen mediocrity. The first, Granitstein says, is the professoriate's guarantee of lifetime employment, the right of tenure. We all thought that tenure was something we wanted to get when we started out. It was, I can remember the, the trouble I had getting tenure in 1970 with one senior member of my department literally arguing, oh, he'd published too much, we shouldn't give him tenure. And I thought this is a very strange sort of argument. Uh, but I got it anyhow, and uh, as did everyone. And in fact, in my experience, about 99% of faculty got tenure. You put people through terrible hoops, uh, but you didn't send them away, whether they were good, bad, or indifferent. You simply gave everyone tenure. And that struck me at the time as being a huge amount of work for no purpose. But then I realized that it did have a purpose. Its purpose was essentially to guarantee that fresh ideas didn't come into the university, that people would would have job security for their lives, that they would be able to do nothing. And 
as I looked around the universities, I became more and more convinced, as did my colleagues in that book, that the universities were full of people who had stopped thinking, stopped teaching, stopped writing, stopped doing any administrative work, who simply turned up, droned through their classes, did the minimum number of hours of uh, office time, and went home and had a really quite nice life on a tolerable salary with three and a half months off in the summer, and it was really very pleasant. And by 1984, when brain robbery came out, we were already into a period where there were huge piles of PhDs unable to get jobs. And we looked around and we said, you know, Joe Doakes over there has just got his PhD and he's brilliant. And here we have Tom Smith in the department who's a dolt. Why can't we get rid of Tom Smith and hire Joe Doakes? Oh, you can't do that. Smith has tenure. It'd be terribly upsetting if we tried to fire him and the administration wouldn't do anything about it. You know, he can't find his way to the washroom without help, but even so, he's here for the next 30 years. And this increasingly, this was starting to drive all of us nuts as we turned out PhDs by the bushel load, knowing that there were no jobs for them turn them out at public expense, knowing there were no jobs for them. The whole system was crazy and it needed and still needs a major overhaul of, of the contractual basis on which faculty work. I mean, very simply, I was made a tenured associate professor in 1970. Had I not applied for promotion to full professor half a dozen years later, I could have gone through an entire lifetime of teaching after 1970, which in my case would have run to 2004 if I had not taken early retirement, without ever being seriously assessed again. And that's not just York University, that's every university. Sure, someone might come into my class once in a while to hear me teach. Sure, student assessments would be done each year, but even if they were devastatingly bad, no one would do anything. No one would make me serve on any committees. No one cared whether I published or not. There isn't much in the way of merit pay left in the universities these days, so you don't get any benefit from working hard. You don't lose much by not working hard. It's just a crazy system. What about the reasons for which tenure is ostensibly there? Tenure is supposed to be to protect academic freedom, to protect the right of faculty to speak out fearlessly on all issues, which God knows I believe in. I think faculty should do that. The problem is that 90% of faculty never speak out on any issue, have no ideas, don't challenge the conventional wisdom, and publish unreadable stuff, if they publish at all, that does nothing but in 99 out of 100 cases uphold the either the ideological position of their department or the status quo in society, both of which are rigid, intractable positions. So I don't frankly think that one needs to worry about protecting academic freedom for most faculty. And for the ones who are troublemakers, there are enough protections now, I believe, in the charter, in various human rights legislations, uh, in guarantees of freedom of speech, in union contracts and others, to effectively eliminate the need for tenure. The second thing Jack Granitstein believes is keeping Canadian universities mediocre is faculty unionism. Originally a backer of the idea, he now believes that it has made the faculty easier for the administration to manage and has increased the influence of the same time servers who benefit from tenure. I was the president of the faculty association at York when we unionized. 
So I was a supporter of unionization. I supported it. This was in the mid-'70s. I supported it and worked for it because I thought what it would do was end the special deals, the sweetheart deals that characterized the university, that it would regularize things. The reason I supported unionization was that I grieved the denial to me of merit by my chairman. I had, I think, published three books or something in the last couple of years, and I was told I wasn't going to get merit because merit was going to go to the people with the lowest paid salaries, and therefore I wasn't going to get it because I was just above the cutoff point. And I thought, this is not how merit is supposed to be. So I grieved. And my grievance went up to the president, was turned down. Then I grieved. This was informally. Then I grieved formally, went through the same people, was turned down again. I thought, this is crazy. So I formed the union um, because I wanted regularized procedures, because I thought it was important that, that merit pay should go to the people who were meritorious, not the people who were lowest paid, because I thought that it would regularize the processes within which we worked. And we had a long struggle at York, and a union took shape by 75, 76. And it did, in fact, regularize those procedures, which was a good thing. The problem was, and I have to admit that I simply stupidly failed to realize this, was that once I was finished organizing the union, I said, thank you very much, now I'll go back and write my books. And the people that took over the union at York and at every other university that unionized were the tenured assistant professors who were very keen on the union because what it meant was that it guaranteed that they wouldn't be fired for their incompetence. And the unions ended up being run by the least competent members of the universities, the people who publish nothing, in most cases taught not very well, but who had endless amounts of time to spend in meetings and who could rule, as I always thought of it, by, the, by their iron bums. I mean, they would sit in a meeting longer than anyone else and therefore they could get their way in the final analysis. And that's basically what happened to the unions. They all turned into protecting the least competent. I had assumed stupidly that unions could be a device to improve the faculty turned out to be exactly the reverse. And uh, although I think there's some good that came out of that process, uh, in that regularization, I don't think that it overall served the purposes of university education in Canada. The third item in Jack Granitstein's indictment is what he and his co-authors in the Petrified Campus call the collapse of standards. They attribute this in part to the rapid expansion of Canadian universities. Once new places had been created, they had to be kept filled in order to fund fixed overheads. If enrollments declined, as they tended to do once the great demographic bulge produced by the baby boom began to tail off, admission requirements had to be lowered in order to keep enrollments up. In consequence, Granitstein says, universities have lowered their expectations of students and devalued a university degree. My concern is that we have been watering down the standards so much that, in fact, what we're doing is a pretense of educating. What's my evidence? Teaching in the system for 30 years. Having friends across the country who do the same thing in different parts of the country. Watching the quality of students deteriorate. Not their grades. Their high school leaving grades go up endlessly, but they can neither read nor write nor speak clearly nor think. The decline in standards in the quality of work submitted 
over the time I've been teaching is catastrophic. The decline has been so marked in the areas of literacy, general knowledge, ability to read and understand difficult texts, uh, ability to speak clearly. I mean, if I had a dime for every student I have who answered a question, well, like, you know what I mean, sir? Um, yeah, like, yeah. And that's that passes as, as public speech in our university system. And you get the same, the equivalent of that in prose. To have graduating students, to have graduate students who cannot write a simple paragraph in history courses where the assumption is that you are able to read and write is, is staggering. But that, in fact, is now almost the norm. And are you convinced that this is an educational failure? There is no shortage of bright kids. I mean, I don't think for a minute that all of a sudden all of Canada's children became stupid. There's as many bright kids as there ever was. What has gone wrong, clearly, is the way they're taught in the schools, in the public schools and in the high schools. Now, despite the failures in the public and high schools, kids still emerge exceedingly bright and in many cases extremely literate. And then we throw them into, you know, multiversity X where they're surrounded by all the dullards they were surrounded in high school. Is it any surprise that the bright students drop out? There's in fact some evidence showing that the students who come into university with the scholarships drop out at a higher rate than those who come without them because they're bored by university. They had assumed that university would be a change from the dreariness of, of high school. Instead, they found out it was more the same with the same people around them. Well, if we had a few elite universities, those kids would have a good place to go to. Developing a few elite universities is Jack Granitstein's proposal for university reform in a nutshell. Such universities, in his view, would be distinguished, first of all, by the published scholarship of their faculties, and second, by the intellectual caliber of the students such scholarship would attract. Bringing these elite institutions into being, he says, will demand public policy that recognizes a hierarchy of university types and funds them accordingly. These types would range from big, general-access, teaching-oriented institutions through a variety of more specialized schools up to the handful of favored research universities that he would like to see emerge at the top of the heap. In the petrified campus, Granitstein and his co-authors point to signs that this more variegated system has begun to emerge. During the last three years, for example, the University of Toronto has been able to trade on its history, its reputation, its moneyed alumni, and its proximity to the centers of economic power to attract $350 million in private donations. Such a sum, unthinkable for most other Canadian universities, will help Toronto attract scholars of high reputation and so augment its elite status. But this tendency to differentiation, Granistein argues, is still being held back by public policy that puts quantity ahead of quality. I am convinced that our universities are in very serious trouble because we have decided that the purpose of a university is accessibility. The important thing is to let as many people as possible get a university experience and a degree. In principle, that is not a bad thing so long as you have differentiation among your universities, so long as there is still a place where someone can go knowing that they will get an absolutely first-class 
education with first-class faculty teaching them and where they will be surrounded by first-class students. The problem in Canada is that we have never, have never been able to deal with elitism versus accessibility. We have become convinced that elitism is a bad thing that elites are by definition corrupt, evil, nasty, rotten, and should be stomped on, with the result that our universities are anti-elitist, that our universities are open to all, that there is not a single, in my view, a single university in this country that offers a genuinely first-class education across the boards, that there is nothing in Canada like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oberlin, Reed, uh, to name a few American examples. that all we have is a place where uh, King's College or uh, UQAM or uh, Toronto or Laurentian or Lethbridge or uh, UNBC, they're all the same. Now, that exaggerates slightly, but not very much. I think we've reached the point where Toronto is now moving ahead again and clearly becoming the number one university in the country but where everything else is very much of a muchness. And I think that uh, this is a disaster for the country. What we're doing is squandering the best brains in our society. And I think people, in fact, are realizing it. It, When I was a kid, it was an article of faith that Canadian schools were better than American. We meant that at every level, from public schools to university. I don't think we believe that today. And I think the simple truth that those who can afford it in this country, send their children to American schools is an indication of that. And when I see faculty doing that in our universities. Which you do. Which I do. And when I see uh, university presidents doing this, which I do, then, by God, you know that even the people teaching in our universities know that there's a fraud being perpetrated. The simple truth is that you while you can get a good education in a Canadian university, if you know what you're doing, if you pick your courses well, and if you uh, work hard, it's much easier to get a good education by going to an American school with real standards and good faculty and good students. We somehow have fallen into the pit of assuming that that. A degree from Laurentian is the equivalent of a degree from Toronto is the equivalent of a degree from Laval. Well, unfortunately, I think it really has become that. And that's not the way a good university system should work. Have accessibility by all means. Have a variety of of universities that cater to the mediocre students who uh, can't get into the good schools. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But you have to have, and we don't have, first-class universities that let in only the very best students and offer them the very best education. The expansion of the Canadian university system was financed almost entirely by governments. At the time the growth began, universities recovered the majority of their costs from tuitions and endowments. By the time it was over, there were some among the new universities that received as much as 90% of their revenues from government. Then, during the 1980s, the trend reversed, and public funding began to decline substantially. Austerity, 
tuition increases and private donations have made up the difference. The change has become increasingly evident during the 90s. Universities compete more than they used to, market themselves more brazenly than they used to, fundraise more than they used to, and sell soft drink manufacturers exclusive access to their students more than they used to. Governments in this new climate have also begun to demand more of universities. As Ontario Premier Mike Harris said recently, they want good value for their investment, which entails, in his words, a fast-tracking of decisions that will provide for more programs of relevance. Now, if you are of Jack Granstein's view and believe that indiscriminate government support has been one of the downfalls of the Canadian university, this trend is not entirely a bad thing. A more competitive, more accountable system could well foster the emergence of the elite institutions he thinks the country deserves. But for those who fear the growing corporate influence on university education, recent developments are more worrying. Paul Axelrod is an historian of education and a professor at York University. His 1982 book, Scholars and Dollars, examines shifting perceptions of the economic importance of universities in Ontario between the 1960s and the 1980s. Universities, he says, have always been seen as economically significant. As early as 1906, a Royal Commission on the University of Toronto noted that the institution was intimately associated with the material interests of the country. But lately, this significance has come to be seen in much narrower terms. When the universities expanded in the post-World War II period, from you know, 1945 on, if you include the post-war veterans, right up until, say, 1970, when the major form of uh, expansion occurred, there certainly was an economic perception of the value of, of universities. They were seen to be serving the community for reasons of the productivity of the people who came out and the job placement that, that took place. But the perception was somewhat different than, than now because then I, I think it was much healthier. And it may have been healthier because the economy was healthier. But the perception was the, the theory of human capital was that any investment that we make in education, wherever we put it, will, will produce returns because we're enriching the nation's intellectual capital. And everybody benefited from that, the liberal arts and the professions and the sciences and the arts, all prospered in that, in that, that period. So the, the link about the importance of education to the labor market was there, but it embraced a broad view of what kind of education would be valuable. We're now in a period that has been marked by the deficit battles, this emerging globalization phenomenon, this perception that we all have to be competitive. It's the law of the economic jungle that seems to have embraced all of us. And what I think is interesting is that nobody seems to think there's a choice. We don't have choice anymore. You know, we, we are caught up in this. We have to we have to move in that direction. I think Linda McQuaig called this the, the cult of impotence, and, uh, and I think that that's a, a useful, if unusual, way to look at it, because it's as though nobody is, is deciding this is all just happening to us, and we better 
get on the bandwagon. So now, what that means in terms of universities and the labor market is that given the uncertainties of uh, economic life, that, that we better start skewing much more closely the kind of, quote, investment we make in education, and that, that we're only going to value those things that seem to produce direct economic returns. So that gets translated into support for those parts of the economy that seem to be growing, well, computer science and uh, biotechnology. And that's where the money is going to go. The, the, an example of this, uh, the Ontario government has said to the universities, if you increase the enrollments in computer science and other applied fields by X amount over three years, you'll get extra funding so long as you match it with with private sector funding. So they increase their enrollments and then they have to go out and get the money, but they'll also get more, more government money. I mean, that just skews what the universities do. Um, so there is this, this problem of what's given a higher priority, the much more selective. Business used to give money generally to universities when they donated. Now, increasingly, my impression is that it's much more targeted to the things that are perceived to be economically valuable. And that leaves us with the problem that certain kinds of education are being highlighted, even though this may be a short-term phenomenon. Engineers have not always done well in the labor market. It goes up and down like this. Same with computer scientists. That could change in a few years. The universities are not going to be able to anticipate every market niche need. They can't build their academic programs that way. They have to provide quality education in a whole variety of fields that include uh, the liberal arts. The change Paul Axelrod is talking about and how the economic significance of education is conceived can be traced in the pronouncements of Ontario's political leaders. When John Robarts stated in 1965 that the province's true wealth lay in an educated citizenry, he still saw education as producing a general economic buoyancy. Thirty years later, when Premier Mike Harris addressed the question of university education, he complained that Ontario universities graduate students in fields that do not directly connect with available jobs. Geography and sociology were his examples. To him, the university had become a place to train for a specific, pre-planned career. This new attitude began to be evident, Axelrod says, during the 1980s. Policies were developed which made public grants for research, in particular, uh, increasingly conditional, set up centers of excellence all over the country, both federally and, and provincially. And for the most part, these were seen to reward people doing research in areas of high technology or the workforce. And not only in the sciences, but also in the, in the social sciences, too. You have strategic grants in, this, in the social sciences, again, designed to be targeted towards particular policy areas that stress the importance of, uh, of the link between education and the labor market. And we have now, in addition to that, governments being much more interventionist in the running of universities, uh, shrinking the autonomy of the institutions. So now, while well, the big rage is performance indicators, I mean, the language of the marketplace has come into the institution. So what this means uh, is that universities, and this is happening in Alberta and now in Ontario, they have to justify 
what they do on the basis of, for example, how many students and programs get jobs. Uh, and if they don't apparently show well in that scale, then that will affect the funding that they get next year. The whole issue of accountability, um, which is, you know, answering to governments on grounds of efficient use of resources. This comes in the wake of universities having already become so efficient in the sense that they haven't had enough money, and this started actually in the late 70s, but continued through the 80s and 90s, to replace all people who retire, so they replace them with, with part-time instead of full-time faculty. The percentage of part-time faculty has gone up, and they're hired because they're cheap. And, and if that isn't an efficient use of your resources, tell me what is. It isn't necessarily good for the pedagogy or the lives of faculty um, who are hired in, in that capacity. But all of these other trendy things from the marketplace have come in the wake of that on the assumption that universities have been wasting all of these, all of these resources. So I think uh, what, what's different now is, well, not only the lack of resources, but the conditional distribution of them and the intervention of government in ways that rob universities of the autonomy that would allow them to do things more broadly and with greater diversity as they, as they had for that period from the end of the Second World War to the, the 1970s. This incipient loss of independence is Paul Axelrod's greatest fear for the institution in which he has spent his life. If the utilitarian view of the university as a mere cog in the wheel of the global economy should triumph, he says, society will lose something unique. There isn't another institution in society whose core is the un-sort of regulated search for knowledge that, that thrives from the engagement with ideas. But the space for that, I think, is, is shrinking in the, in the institution now. Uh, this utilitarian thrust is, I think, stronger than ever. And public funding of autonomous institutions has been, in Canada, the, the bulwark against that movement uh, in which universities have had resources and have had the, the space to engage people in that exercise. And I think that's giving way slowly. We aren't at the end of the process yet. Uh, maybe it isn't even a, a crisis yet, but I think that uh, we may be moving farther down that road. I mean, I'm afraid that sometime in the early 21st century, we're gonna wake up one day and be not quite sure how it happened, but we're gonna have an educational system from primary school up to higher education that we won't even recognize. It's going to look like something designed by General Motors. Education in the contemporary world is intimately associated with work. It is one of the largest employers in a modern economy. It's considered a necessary preparation for employment for the rest of the citizens. And I think it's probably fair to say that it's regarded as a form of work by the majority of its students. 
Under these circumstances, it's easy to forget that the pursuits from which our idea of education derives were originally thought to be the opposite of work. Aristotle, in his Politics, defines what we would now call education as the occupation of leisure, scholi, the root of our word school. For him, it is what people do when they are free of the burden of servile work and able to contemplate nature without any desire to use or alter it. From Aristotle, there descends a long tradition which distinguishes the liberal from the mechanical arts, separating those things that we do freely and for their own sake from those things that we have to do to live. The university was one of the places where such free and disinterested pursuits were supposed to be carried on. Today, when the university's proudest boast is its economic dynamism, the idea of education as a leisured pursuit may seem tenuous and antique, and yet there are still those who think it provides whatever vestiges of a soul the university still possesses. Michael Higgins is the president-elect of St. Jerome's, a Roman Catholic college within the University of Waterloo, where he's been the vice president and academic dean for a number of years. Like Paul Axelrod, he has watched a more and more utilitarian ethos take over his university in recent years. He says that there has been some good in the universities becoming more involved with Canadian society, but he thinks that what has tended to get lost in the process is what Cardinal John Henry Newman, writing in the 19th century, called the idea of a university. Newman reflected on the fact that the university shouldn't be a treadmill, shouldn't be a mint, shouldn't be a foundry. It's, it's an alma mater. It's a place where you're nurtured. It's a place where the, the mind is allowed to be free. It's a place where the soul is cultivated. It's a place in a real sense of sanctuary. And we have so few places of sanctuary in, in North American life. And I, it seems to me that uh, at one level, we, we recognize this and we yearn for it. And retreat houses and centers of spirituality are inundated by people who, who need quiet time, who need reflective time, who need to disengage in order to engage. But the thing is that in many ways, that's what the university did. And that's what the university should do. It should be, and that's why I use that term, sanctuary, because it seems to me, number one, it shouldn't be cut off, David, from its religious roots. The university, in its Western form at least, has profoundly religious roots. And it seems to me that, that the more we distance ourselves from them, the more seriously we depart from its original mandate or purpose. Now, I don't mean that we have to, quotation marks, we Christianize all the universities that have been secularized. I'm not saying that in the least. What I am saying is that there was a component of that, however, the contemplative component, the attention to, to ideas as, in very important way, the stuff that help define the divinity of humankind, that, um, that as a thinking species, uh, ideas aren't just simply a luxury a decoration, something to be uh, employed uh, at maximum marketing uh, warp speed in order to achieve success, but in fact as something that humanizes us, 
something that brings us into uh, encounter with God or with the transcendent in a meaningful way. And so the contemplative component of university education seems to me absolutely critical. Now, I obviously sound like a museum piece talking about these things, but I think in many ways that the, if the university is to be the kind of place where leisure which we often think of as just simply inactivity, a kind of useless non-time, actually is allowed to be what it is, a nurturing ground for us to be fully human, then the university has to be at the heart of this. And the university has to be involved not only in the cultivation of leisure, in the nurturing of a sacred place for leisure, but in allowing us to see that, that leisure and contemplation and the disinterested um, pursuit of ideas and the debate over ideas are collectively at the heart of what makes us human and not a decoration, not a frill, not an elitist uh, camp. Michael Higgins sees this vision of the university as increasingly threatened by the practical demands with which students now have to deal. No longer do they approach university as a period of free discovery. More often, he says, it is now the intensively planned first stage of a career. Students uh, identify courses that they should take or must take or programs that they should take because they're courses that are going to guarantee them jobs. They're under pressure from the parents and indeed from their banks and indeed from their friends to take courses, to take programs, indeed to take degrees that will guarantee them an entree into the market or at least a competitive position. If they take courses in the traditional humanities, they have no such automatic guarantee and many of them who would have been drawn to these in the past take programs programs of secondary interest to them intellectually, but primary interest in terms of the vocation. And I, I think that introduces a component in university experience that for many of them diminishes the value of what we at least hitherto had seen as an important transition stage in one's maturing. Uh, the university as a place where ideas are jostled with, ideas are invented, ideas are debated, ideas are throttled, ideas are all kinds of things happen, and you have the freedom and the time to do that. And I think if you look at the average Canadian university student now, you will, you will not see that kind of attitude toward the university. You'll, you'll see that, well, this is where, this is where I go, because I've got to get this in order to get that. And as I say, this has been happening for some time, but its utilitarian face now is the strongest it's, it's ever been. One of the casualties of this new utilitarian ethos, in Michael Higgins' view, has been the relationship of student to teacher. Contact is limited by the hectic pace of student life and by the contemporary student's image of himself or herself as a client rather than an acolyte. Teachers, for their part, fear that familiarity might be misconstrued. The result, Higgins says, is generally more distant relations. And I was just driving into Toronto with my daughter, and uh, she was going to be taking a couple of classes next year. And she was saying that, uh, oh, if I take two classes with this professor, then maybe there will be somebody here who will remember my name, who will know my name. And that, that is not uncommon, where, where, where the students just simply feel unconnected with the professor. And it's not necessarily that the professor has been indifferent to this need. It's just simply that the structure doesn't make it possible in many ways, that the nature of their programs now 
and the capacity of the university to, to deliver on these programs and to provide the kinds of courses that are in high demand and therefore high enrollment courses and the dependent upon graduate assistance or the increasing dependence upon sessional lectures and whatnot, all contribute in many ways to the unwinding of a kind of a special bond that should exist between an instructor and a student, between a tutor and a student, a very important one. And it's been further exacerbated, the difficulties surrounding this, of course, by the whole issue of harassment and sexual grievance and abuse, because there can be no question, both as associate dean and, and latterly as dean, where these cases have come across my desk and where I have been involved in many of them and in their resolution that this issue blew open. It was a justice issue. It is being faced, it's being faced, I think, by and large, in the university with, with candor. Not always consistently, and not always convincingly, but I think by and large with candor and with the genuine concern. But one of the negative implications of this is, of course, an almost enervating or petrifying timidity in terms of the relationship that students have with the with their professor or the professor with their students. Professors always keeping their doors open all the time now. Students being reluctant to uh, come to a, to a professor and have their intentions misunderstood. Uh, professors fearful that, it, that anything they say, and unless sufficiently nuanced, may be misconstrued and used against them, creates, if not a debilitating climate of fear, at least has the potential and the reality in some cases, clearly, of subduing the passion for learning and the need, indeed, for honest exchange. I mean, there is a pastoral role, I think, that a professor should play, has traditionally played, that he's, he or she has not been concerned just with this student's subject, but also with the whole student. And that has been fractured. Student life, as Michael Higgins sees it, is far more dominated by immediate practical considerations than it once was. Studies that seem to offer no practical benefit tend to be pushed to the margins. The problem with this for Higgins is that many pursuits that might seem useless in a short-term economic sense are, in a longer view, vital to the existence of a free society. What will ultimately prove beneficial, he says, is not necessarily what will guarantee immediate employment. The pressure is on the cultivation of those skills that are marketable. I mean, you don't, you don't want somebody coming out with a degree in Aristotelian metaphysics. But in an important way, the people who are the metaphysicians or the epistemologists or the specialists in Old English are in many ways the, precisely the ones we want to be educated for the future, the ones we want to be able to make discerning judgments, to understand the past, to be discriminating, to understand the implications of things that are not, are not visible and palpable and tangible and immediate and driven by um, the kind of ephemeral mystique we associate with the media, but in important ways able to, to dissect and to analyze. In many ways, the traditional humanities, philosophy, English literature, religious studies and whatnot, did precisely that. They, they trained or educated one to dissect, to analyze the text, to engage with ideas, not to be deceived, to be skeptical, to be scrupulous in, in, in the use of words and to know something about their etymology. Now, those skills are critical to a free society, and the development of utilitarian habits and skills May not be. I'm often reminded that you know that when a when a fascist regime or a totalitarian regime takes over, it is not the uh, engineers and the dentists and the cardiologists that they arrest. It's the writers. 
thinkers, the poets, they're the ones that they go for first because they're the ones that threaten any kind of uh, regime that understands um, freedom as a um, potent force for dissolving control. And writers, poets, artists, they're at the heart of this. And students who study them are at the heart of that tradition. And so I think... Um, the, when I said earlier about the university being a sanctuary, I wasn't being glib, David, by suggesting a kind of sacred role for it or an historical role that makes it rather rarefied. I was thinking of it uh, as a guarantor of our liberty, of our real, genuine freedom, that the university provides us with that place, with that context that that's inviolate, that says, okay, here ideas are scrupulously examined, systems opposed, charades exposed, um, ideas uh, and ideologies always suspect. This is a world that can't be bought. This isn't a world that's subservient to anything. This is a special moment, a special time for the student and for the teacher engaged in, in working with the student to explore things with a kind of um, uh, religious purity, a, a kind of uh, innocence uh, not compromised by larger uh, and external uh, concerns, which is, the, which is the world we live in. Of course, there are these things, and, and um, our lives are affected by, by government and by commerce and by the church and by several other different factors. But for that special moment, you know, the university is sanctuary. The university is, is an undergraduate experience that gives them the chance to realize that thought and free thought is the ultimate guarantor of their, of their basic freedom. It seems to me we, if we diminish that, if we muddy the waters, we're losing something critical to ourselves as a, as a civilization. The word university implies, by its etymology, a condition of unity and of universality. This unity was provided for the first universities, and for many still, by Christianity. All things cohere in Christ, as the motto of McMaster University says. When secular universities were created, or as often happened in Canada, when church-affiliated universities transformed themselves into non-sectarian public universities, reason became their pole star and the source of their coherence. Today, after a generation in which reason has been repeatedly attacked as a disguised form of domination, the university appears to have lost its unity. There is now no test of knowledge or truth that all members of the institution will accept. Let me take an example from the pages of Bothwell, Burkesson, and Granitstein's The Petrified Campus. They quote an article by Carleton University Canadian Studies professor Jill Vickers that appeared in a magazine called Supplement in 1994. Professor Vickers relates a disagreement that occurred while a group of students and faculty were vetting textbooks that they were using for racist or sexist bias. An Aboriginal student, she writes, was very concerned that one of our texts taught that Aboriginal peoples came to North America over the Bering Strait from Asia. I argued, she continues, that it seemed to be a proven scientific fact. The student then responded that Aboriginal peoples believed they had originated on this continent, that is, that they were indigenous. Professor Vickers then asked whether the two positions could be taught as parallel belief systems. This proposal 
that archaeological evidence and folk belief be given equal status strikes Bothwell, Berkeson, and Granitstein as, in their words, a terrifying abdication of academic responsibility by Professor Vickers. She, apparently, considers it a way to show respect and keep the conversation going. What I see in the story is a vision of academic life without common denominator. Professor Vickers' unwillingness to use scientific reason as a trump card, her sense that this was something to be struggled with, not definitively settled, epitomizes the non-universal university. Knowledge is seen as an effect of class, race, or gender. There is no higher court to which knowledge claims can be appealed. This unmasking of reason has left the university without a common internal standard, and it seems to me that this is one more way in which the university has become subject to political influences external to its scholarly culture. The economic pressures of which Paul Axelrod and Michael Higgins spoke earlier add to its vulnerability. The university, as the chairman of Xerox Canada has said, is no longer sacred ground. The result is an institution that seems to be losing its independence and its distinct character. Peter Emberley of Carleton University has written several books on education, most recently Zero Tolerance, Hot-Button Politics in Canada's Universities, and he thinks that independence is precisely what the university can't afford to lose if it is to fulfill its proper purpose. You'll hear more on this theme from Peter Emberley in the next program of this series. He concludes tonight's program with his reflections on the danger of tying the university too tightly to the world. I think that um, a lot of the reform going on today sort of starts from the wrong end because it starts at the end of what is the product that we want, um, which is usually related to some vocational or professional requirement of society. And uh, it, I think it's um, a very, very peculiar thing to see university education as a means to that specific kind of end, partly because you can't get the degree of certainty in university education that you can, let's say, for more vocational training. I think that the kinds of uh, very complex adventures that the university invites young people into will have uh, conclusions which are in no ways predictable. Um, one, of course, hopes that really what is achieved through university education is the kind of openness that leads people to realize that intellectual and spiritual searches and adventures are an essential ingredient of their humanity. But what specific end that produces, I think it's, it, it's quite wrong for us to try to compress that into the specific needs of society. And um, I think a lot of the talk about re-engineering and reforming the university and the schools, uh, making the schools and universities far more accountable to the specific immediate needs of society is very dangerous because I think it cuts off precisely those intellectual and spiritual experiences one wants an education to form. And I think they're also bankrupt. I think that uh, when, when one examines the sorts of criteria that are being used in performance indicators, it's ultimately depriving uh, the university of what its greatest achievements can be, which is precisely to form a human being and to cultivate a human being. I, I think the book actually that 
probably um, left the greatest impression on me, and uh, which I continue to reread almost yearly, is Thomas Munn's The Magic Mountain. And I think of Hans Kastorp, uh, the, the protagonist of the novel, I mean, coming up to this tuberculin sanatorium and uh, the experiences he undergoes. And uh, I mean, there are various efforts by uh, individuals in the, whom he meets up there to form him in a certain way and to cultivate him in a certain way. And there's a kind of pressure that he return to the valley or to the flatlands, being a certain type of being able to fit into society. But in fine, we discover the whole richness of human life that he experiences up there can't be predicted, and it's uncharted. And it's, uh, he sort of, to use Michael Oakeshott's wonderful terms, he sailed into this boundless sea that doesn't have a destination. But we certainly learn that he becomes, I mean, a, the most wonderful example of what a human being is capable of doing and, and thinking and loving and believing. Um, and I think that's what the university is. It is that kind of a metamorphosis of a young person. And uh, I think that the demand to somehow tie university education to a specific uh, social need, just very narrow and very disappointing. <laughs> On Ideas Tonight, you've heard part 13 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Our series continues tomorrow night with a program about the condition of the liberal arts in the contemporary Canadian university. A schedule of the series is available on the CBC website. Go to www.radio.cbc.ca and look for Ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. The associate producers were Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction by David Field. You can get a printed transcript of the series for $25 or a set of audio tapes for $90, and those prices include taxes and handling. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.